Uh, the sermon scripture text this morning is from Judges chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night long, saying, let us wait until the light of the morning. Then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up bar and all and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the seeker of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come, come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man." When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their, in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as that other times and shake myself free but he did not know that the Lord had left him and the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice and they said our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand 
And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Holy Father, we love your word. In it, there is an unbounded source of truth and life and wisdom. In it, we come face to face with our Savior, Jesus. Teach us what it is you want to teach us. Work in our hearts the work that only you and your grace and kindness can do. We are are waiting for you. Our hearts are open. Speak, Holy Spirit. Pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, my first uh, summer during seminary, I was looking for opportunities to preach and teach, as you do when you're in seminary. And Southern, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to have a partnership with Oxmoor Retirement Home. Uh, do they still do this? Okay. So they would do a Sunday night service for the residents, and you could sign up to teach the, the service. Um, and so I, I signed up, and I just finished biblical hermeneutics, which is uh, basically biblical interpretation. And so I was, I was pumped. I was a new seminary student, so I was excited to, to be there. Excited to, to, to teach this lesson. Uh, they're supposed to be 15 to kind of 20-minute these sermonettes, these are not full-blown sermons, and uh, I decided to preach on the Beatitudes, the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, and, I, and I'm not kidding, for this 15 to 20 minute sermonette, I spent well over 25 hours of preparation, and this before I knew the language, it wasn't translation, it was just reading and over-reading and looking at cross-references and commentaries, and um, I, 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 was, I was very well prepared, and Mark and I are driving to the Oxmoor Retirement Home, and we're pulling into the parking lot, and I had one of those pre-reflective moments where we think what we really think and not what we're supposed to think. And I thought to myself, this is going to be good. I'm going to crush this. Thought in my head. So we go into the building, and uh, first thing I noticed, which was not what I was expecting, is I had assumed that there would be a chapel I would be preaching in or some kind of room. And we walk in, and they have the service set up in the lobby with a 30-foot-tall ceiling 
hallways going in multiple directions, and it's right next to the dining room. And it's at 6 o'clock, so people are eating in the dining room. You hear this constant you know, drone of people talking and clinking. And, 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 and again, most of these are elderly, and many of them are hard of hearing, and there's no amplification. And so, and then as soon as you say something, the sound just dissipates into the 30-foot-tall ceilings or into the hallways or is overwhelmed by the drones. That was the first problem. Second one, they had the, the, the chair set up in a circle, which is wonderful when you're having group discussion, but I was not told it was a discussion. I was told it was a sermon. And preaching when chairs are in a circle is, is supremely awkward because the first question is, do you stand? Because everyone else is sitting, but it feels weird to sit when you preach, so you stand, but like, who do you look at? Like, There's people literally on either side of you, so it's just, it's just awkward. But I start preaching, I get into my sermon, and I'm about halfway through it. I'm, I'm feeling it, right, because I've been marinating in this text for many, many hours. And, I, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to inch forward without realizing, because where do you move when you're in a circle? So I'm just slowly moving forward, and um, an elderly lady, uh, yeah, I don't know how else this is, she yelled at me. <laughs> she said, young man, you need to step back and speak up. And uh, I was flustered. I lost my place. Uh, I had decided to memorize my sermon because 15, 20 minutes is not that long to memorize, especially when you spend 25 plus hours on it. So I had it memorized. So I got flustered. I lost my place. I, I, I didn't know how to refine my place because all I had was my Bible. By the way, this is why I always, always preach with notes. And I literally have reoccurring nightmares of not being able to find my notes minutes before I have to preach. I don't know what to do. I don't know where I am. I have 20 sets of eyes staring at me. And so I made an executive decision, and I closed in prayer at that, at that moment. Uh, it was a very humiliating experience. And Marco, as, as we were driving home, I mean, she was there for the whole train wreck. <laughs> she saw it all, and uh, she's trying to encourage me. And she's like, you know, I think, um, I think when you read the passage, again, you read the, I read all the Beatitudes, even though I only preached on the first one. And when you read, like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, some of the residents teared up because, you know, they've, they've mourned a lot. Uh, and I was like, okay, that is encouraging, but it also means that, like, the 25-plus hours I put into it meant nothing. The only thing that was helpful was when I just read the text, and I should have just read the text and said, amen, uh, let's go home. But it was one of the first of, of, of many times when I've had to learn and be reminded that I am not a very big deal, uh, and God is a far bigger deal than I often realize and the, and, and, and the power that, you know, especially in Christian teaching, the only power we have is, is the power that comes through God's, God's word. And that, for me, it was humiliating, but it was also necessary. And here's the reason. Usually when you go to seminary, it's because, at least in part, someone at some time, in some place, in some way said, hey, I think you're, you're pretty good at this. You should consider this. But it's so easy to take what God has given as a gift and to begin to appropriate it as something that is like ours, to forget that anything we have, everything we have is by the sheer grace of God. It is a gift from God, and anything he accomplishes through us, anything, is just an example of God's immense power that he can work through such ones as us. It's just, it's easy to forget that, and I needed that. To be reminded, as I drove in and I had that pre-reflective moment, I'm going to crush this, that no, Mike, you're not. You're not a big deal. Samson also had received an incredible, extraordinary gift. Supernatural strength. I mean, he was a deliverer of Israel, which means his role was to deliver Israel from his physical enemies. And if you can pick 
one thing to have, you want to have a superpower when that's your role. Imagine what Othniel, if you remember, he was the first judge. He was the ideal judge who served the Lord, who feared God, was also a warrior. Imagine what he could have accomplished if he'd had Samson's strength. Samson had an extraordinary gift, but he forgets, he forgot that his strength was not his own, but was a, a gift of God, was by the sheer grace of God. And he began to live as if this strength really was his, as if it was something that he had control over, that was his by right, that he could take it for granted, that he would always have this strength. And in the process, he not only forgot that his strength was a gift, but he forgot God as well. And that's what we see in our text this morning. But we also see that God is a God of tremendous grace, not just in the gifts that he gives us, but also in the fact that to pursue us and to bring us to himself, sometimes he will remove those gifts if he needs to. And that's what we see in Samson, to show us that all that we have, anything we have, is a gift of the Lord, and we're to use it to please him. So our, our first point is Samson's foolishness. Our second point is Samson's humbling. Our third point is Samson's redemption. So first point, Samson's foolishness. A quick recap again, Samson... There are more chapters devoted to Samson than any other judge in the book. There's four chapters, I believe. Uh, he's born with the highest expectations. God appears to his, his mother and father and tells him, you know, you're going to give birth to this son who will begin to deliver Israel. And yet he is, I don't think arguably, I, I just think he is, he is the worst of all the judges. Uh, he mostly is, is, is on his own plan. He's doing his own thing. He, he fights the Philistines pretty much out of personal disputes and vengeance, not because he really cares about freeing Israel. Um, uh, and even though God accomplishes what he wants through Samson, it's very much despite Samson, not because of Samson's faithfulness. And what we see in our text this morning is that Samson's foolishness catches up to him. And what we see is, you know, between 15 and 16, there's time that's gone by, and it's probably been anywhere from 15 to 20 years, and now we see Samson towards the end of his ministry, and what we see in Samson is that he, as he ages, grows increasingly reckless and increasingly compulsive in his behaviors. So this is Samson's foolishness. Let me read for us verses 1 to 3 again. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, <clears throat> and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and he put them on his shoulders, and he carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So the first thing we see is that Samson is visiting prostitutes. Chapter 14 begins when he wants to go after what would have been a forbidden woman, a woman who did not worship Yahweh. Israelites were commanded... You, you can only intermarry with each other because if you intermarry with others, they're gonna, they worship false gods and they're going to lead you away from Yahweh. And so the woman in Timnah was a forbidden woman for Samson, so to speak. But he's gone from pursuing what is forbidden to now just visiting prostitutes. This show, and, and, and I think we're shown this not as a one-off occurrence, but the idea here is that this is becoming, this is Samson's life now. This is the stuff he does. And, and I'll tell you something. This shows the progression in Samson's life because nobody, nobody wakes up one morning and thinks, I want to pay a stranger to engage in the most intimate act you can with a human being. There is a 
progression of distortion of lust and, 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 and passion that has to happen before someone gets to that point. And that's Samson. He's become compulsive. He must have his lust satisfied, even if he means he has to pay for it. And we see Samson's compulsive desire for, for sex, even more with the story of Delilah, where it's patently obvious that she's trying to ruin him, and yet he keeps coming back because he's driven by his compulsive lust. But it's, it's not just that he's going to a prostitute. This is a prostitute in the city of Gaza that tells us something else. Gaza was one of the chief cities in Philistia. It was deep within the territory of the Philistines. And by this point, Samson is, you know, public enemy number one for the Philistines. Like they have bounties out for him, most likely. He has been 20 years of, of, of him causing issues. And he's not going to Philistia because there aren't prostitutes in Israel. The whole picture of Israel this time is they're horribly compromised. And they very likely had cultic prostitution because they worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. And that was part of, of the deal with that worship. And so he's going to Gaza, not because there aren't prostitutes he can visit in Israel, but because he wants the thrill of it. It's a lot more exciting to have a story like this happen where you're surrounded. And then once again, he can do this heroic exploit. He's becoming reckless as he ages. And the picture we get of Samson as we put all these pieces together is that Samson has become an adrenaline-seeking sex addict. He thinks he's invincible because he's kept pushing the boundaries and he's kept getting away with it. And so he's addicted to the high. He wants that next thrill. And he keeps doing more and more reckless things. And in the end, of course, this reveals Samson's foolishness. Why? Because his strength, he's acting as if his strength is his own, as if it'll always be there. Because it's, he has it by right, not because God has given him by grace this gift that God can remove at any time. So we see Samson's foolishness in, in, in his recklessness and in in the compulsiveness of his behavior. But this all stems from the second way we see his foolishness, which is his naive self-confidence. And this is why he grows more and more reckless. He's just naively self-confident. Let's look at the story here where we, we meet Delilah. I'm going to read verses, well, I'm going to read part of verses 4 to 17. So after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him, see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. We will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And then Samson basically mocks her and tells her this ridiculous story like, well, If you bind me with these fresh bowstrings, then I'll be as weak as any other man. That doesn't work. Then he says, Okay, bind me with fresh rope. That makes a little bit more sense, but that also doesn't work. Then he says, uh, Braid my hair in a web, which is getting closer to the truth, but that also doesn't work. And then finally, in verse 15, she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death, and he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak be like any other man. This is such a strange story. Why? I mean, it's like, 
the Philistines come to Delilah, okay, seduce him, see where his strength lies, and she's not subtle about it. She just like goes and is like, so Samson, someone want to take you down. How would that, ha- how would that happen? Asking for a friend. It's just like, n- no one's fooled by this, right? She's a Philistine. He's public enemy number one for Philistia. Think of a modern day analogy. Okay, so imagine Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, has invaded Ukraine. Imagine he had a Ukrainian mistress who's just like, Vlad, quick question. If someone wanted to kill you, what would be the best way to make that happen? It's like, that's, that's suspicious, okay? If, here's my pastoral encouragement for the morning. If you're single, and you say you meet a sweetie on Christian Mingle, and you're having a couple dates, it's going well, and then one time this person says, ah, so if someone wanted to ruin your life, how would one do that? Take heed, take heed. It's just weird. Why does he keep coming back? It's so obvious. And the simple answer is because Samson is confident that nothing can happen to him. He's convinced it doesn't matter what Delilah does, what she knows. He's invincible. Why? Because he's always gotten away with it in the past. He's always been able to get his way out of scrapes because he's pretty confident in the strength that he has. He's naively self-confident, and it will be, in the end, his downfall. This is Samson's foolishness. This is where he comes to by the end of his life. And there's a lesson in here for us, and it's this. Success can be incredibly dangerous for a believer, for a Christian. Uh, Success can lead us in places that are not good because of the deceitfulness of our flesh, of sin. We can begin to take God's grace towards us, his gifts to us, and begin to appropriate all of the credit in such a way that we think, oh, it's because of my strength, or it's because of my skill, or my hard work, or what I've put into this, that this is why I've, I've experienced what I've experienced. And the reason why that's so dangerous is because of where the Bible tells us blessedness lies. Where is blessedness? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are impoverished in spirit. Um, as Frederick Buechner says, not just those who, uh, who know they have little to give, but also know that they have everything to receive. And success, is, spiritual blessedness is when we see our spiritual poverty and we live that out, we live that reality out in our life, that everything we have, everything we've accomplished is a, is a sheer gift by the sheer grace of God. And the thing that success can do is maybe it doesn't make us feel spiritually rich. I don't think any of us heard that pompous, but it begins to make us feel spiritually middle class. To kind of stick in this, in this metaphor here, like spiritually speaking, all of a sudden we have a house, we have a car, we have a 401k, we have three to six months of, you know, cash reserves. We don't, we don't need him today or tomorrow. We have some recognition that there could be a tragedy that happens that we could need him, but, but we'll be okay for now. And when that happens, again, we, we, we lose that desperation every day of, God, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. I'm nothing apart from you. I have nothing worth anything apart from you. And when we lose that urgency, we, we lose a, that intimate fellowship with our Father, which is the only important thing in this world. That's what success can do. The upside-down logic of, of the kingdom of God is that success may, in fact, be tragedy, Beware of it. But here's the thing. If everything we have is a gift from the Father, 
And that means that he can take it away when he needs to. And that's what God does to Samson, not to be petty, but because he knows that the only way, that is the only way that he can bring Samson back to him. So this brings us to our second point. So our first point was Samson's foolishness. He's reckless, he's compulsive, he's naively self-confident. But secondly, Samson's humbling. Let me read for us verses 18 to 22. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees, and she called the man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. This is the humbling of Samson. There, there, there's a question that's kind of being asked throughout this story, and it's this. What can humble such a man? Uh, we see this in the repetition of the word humble. In, in verse 5, when the Philistines go to Delilah, they, 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 I mean, they, they outright say it, like, seduce this man and tell us by what means we may overpower him, bind him, and humble him. They want to bring Samson down. They want to humble Samson so they can destroy him. That's, that's the Philistines' goal. But through this all, we also see, again, God who is sovereign, even in the work of, of, of his enemies, God also wants to humble Samson, but it's not so that he might destroy Samson. It's so that he might call Samson back to himself. What will humble such a man? And Delilah, this is what Delilah says to Samson, when she then again turns and, and you know, <laughs> not even trying to hide it. Tell me where your great strength lies. He may be bound. How one could subdue you. Now there, it's the same word. It's a word that has a couple different meanings, and subdue is, is, is a good meaning. But it's the same word for humble. And for my Bible nerds out there, uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, it translates this as humble. It doesn't translate as subdue. What will humble such a man? And then in verse 19, uh, finally when Delilah's cut off his hair, it says that she began to torment him. Again, same word. It actually means humble. And again, Septuagint uh, translates as humble. What can humble such a man? And the answer is in verse 20. It's nothing the Philistines can do. The Philistines have no power that God does not give to them. Uh, it's nothing in Sam... It, 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 well, we'll see. What can humble Samson? Well, verse 20. He's, uh, you know, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, and he woke from sleep, and he thinks, oh, it's going to be the same as every other time. I'm going to go out, shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now here's one interesting thing here is we get a real glimpse into Samson's heart. Uh, we got to picture this. Samson is in his 30s or 40s. He's never cut his hair. I've never had very long hair. But I can imagine 30, 40 years of hair, that's some heavy hair. And so the moment he woke up, he would have known, my hair is gone. And yet what does he say to himself? I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. See, he had told Delilah, look, if you cut my hair, I'll lose my strength and I'll be like any other man. But really, in Samson's heart of hearts, he thought, no, even you cut my hair, 
because I've broken all my other vows. This is, this is mine. I will still be able to shake myself free because the power is in me. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. His strength was not his own. His talent was not his own. He had done nothing to earn them or deserve them. God had given them to him. What God gives, God can take away. Here's the thing. Samson thought he was something special. And he, he keeps telling Delilah, if you do this, I'll be like any other man. The assumption there is he's not like any other man. He's special. The truth is that Samson was like any other man. He just served an extraordinary God. And Samson had to be shown, shown something incredibly important, which is that he was not a big deal. He thought, he's like, I'm Samson. I, I, I'm, the, I'm the Israelite Hercules. I'm a big deal. And God had to bring him to a place to show him, no, no, Samson, without me, this is what you are. And we get verse 21. This is Samson without God and his grace. The Philistines seized him and they gouged out his eyes and they brought him down to Gaza and they bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. Who is Samson apart from the grace of God? He is a disgraced, blinded prisoner at the mercy of his enemies, spending his life doing the drudgery that an animal would do, grinding grain. It's a profound spiritual picture over all of us are. Without the grace of God, where are we? Without the work of Jesus, we're, we're blind. We're captive to our sin. We're wandering about, have no idea where we're going. We spend our lives on things that don't matter. This is why Paul, when he's writing to the church of, of, of Corinth in a city that's drunk on their obsession with status and honor and power, he says, look, the apostles... In, in, in the church hierarchy, if anyone has honor and power and prestige, it is the apostles. And yet, what are the apostles, according to the Paul? They're just jars of clay. They have treasure in them, but they, the apostles, are jars of clay. Why? So that, the surpa- so that it will show to anyone looking that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to the apostles. What were jars of clay? They were the ancient Near East paper cups. Ubiquitous, disposable, I mean, when they do archaeological digs, they find pottery fragments everywhere. Why? Because pottery was cheap, and even the poorest of poor would have pottery vessels to store their flour and their oil in. Nothing special. Easily broken. Even the apostles are like that. Samson thought he was a big deal because God had accomplished much through him and given him great, extraordinary gifts. So Samson thought he was this big deal. But he wasn't. And he had 20 years to figure that out, and he never learned it. And so God had to humble him. He had to bring him to the place of verse 21 to show Samson, to bring Samson back to him. Here's here's the application, I think, for the second point. There's a tension we live in as Christians. Uh, The tendency is either we either take everything seriously, and then we end up taking ourselves seriously, or we take nothing seriously, including God. And the tension we have to live within is we take God utmost, utmost seriousness. His gospel is not good advice. It is life and death. Die on the hill of scriptures, on the truth we find there. Hell is real. And God has come, and Christ has risen from the grave. And these are truths that we never take for granted, ever. At the same time, we, just, we don't take ourselves seriously. 
And that's what's hard to do, right? What could break me? Honestly, probably pretty easy. A death in my family? Health problems? Chronic health problems? I don't know. Probably much less than it took to break Job. Why? I'm just... I'm a, I'm a clay jar. And so we want to be a people, we take, you know, God is, is worthy of eternal contemplation, and we will spend all eternity just marveling at the wonder and the magnificence of who God is, that he would save ones like us, and we'll never go tired of it. That's who God is. We're not a big deal. Never take ourselves seriously. And God will humble us when he needs to. When we're tempted to take ourselves a little too seriously, when we're in danger of becoming spiritually middle class, God loves us enough that he won't let us wander too far into our naive self-confidence. And we have to finish the second point with looking at verse 22 because it's so important. Verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Again, the Philistines wanted to humble Samson to kill him. God wanted to humble Samson to bring him back and ultimately to raise him back up. There may be people in your life who don't like you. Maybe one day you will, there will be people in your life who want to humble you to destroy you. God is never like that. When he humbles us, it's because he loves us and he wants to raise us back up. And this is our third point. So first, Samson's foolishness. Second point, Samson's humbling. But third point, Samson's Redemption? And I put that at question mark because if you read five commentaries, you will get 15 opinions on what happens to Samson at the end here. And the reason is because the text is ambiguous. I think there's clearly redemption, but it is not a finished work. Samson changes, but he is not a sanctified saint yet. And that's the tension that, that we see here. But let me read for us verses 23 to 31 again. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them, and they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars in which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. And then Samson called to the Lord. He said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them and his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down, and they took him, and they brought him up and buried him between Zorah 
and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Some things to notice are important. It says that the lords of the Philistines had gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. The context here is most likely in a temple to Dagon. And what the Philistines are doing is they believe that their god has delivered Samson to them. This is evidence of Dagon's supremacy and his might, that he is king and lord of all, not Yahweh. And so they're bringing out Samson to mock him and humiliate him to show how great their God is. And so at one level, on a superficial level, this is Samson versus Philistines. But the real contest here is Yahweh versus Dagon, the false god of, of the Philistines. That's the context we have here. And we see a great change in Samson, and it's where his faith lies. Look at verse 28 again, which is the prayer that Samson prays. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Samson has come to see that his strength was not his own, but it was a sheer gift of God by the grace of God. And we see this because Samson's strength has not yet returned. It says his hair has come back, but his strength has not returned with it. Samson knows now that his strength is not tied to his hair, it's not tied to his vows. It's not tied to anything intrinsic within him, which is why when he comes before God, his prayer is so different than the prayer that he prayed at the end of chapter 15. In 15, he's like thirsty and he's, he's, he's going to die, and so he basically reprimands God. Like, you're really going to let me die this way, me who is your great servant? And then we get here, Samson humbled, and what does he say? God, remember me. I don't deserve this. It's not my own it is only a gift you can give. Samson's been humbled. He sees that all that he had was always a gift of God. And so he, he asks God, humbly, crying out to him for help. But further, Samson has come to understand that Yahweh really is the only Lord, the only God. Again, we have to picture the situation. Samson, he's lost his strength. He's blinded. He's surrounded by 3,000 Philistines, the who's who of Philistia, in the temple of their God, which would have looked probably very impressive. And, and, and not only is he at the mercy of his enemy, like they, they're making him entertain them. I, I don't know what that means. Like he's singing, a man with like gaping sockets for eyes, singing for the enemies who've so humiliated him. Like do a song and dance for us, Samson. If there is any place where you would question that Yahweh is Lord, it is in this place. And what does Samson pray? Oh, Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, Lord, ruler. It doesn't matter what all these people are praising. It doesn't matter what they're saying or thinking. It doesn't matter that it looks completely untrue. You, Yahweh, are Lord over all. Even in this place, you are Lord. It's like the quote, I can't remember who says it. There's not one square inch of this world of which Jesus, who is Lord, does not cry, Fine. Samson sees that. You are Lord even in this place. But he doesn't just pray to God who is omnipotent and all-powerful, but he cries to the God who is Yahweh. That's, that's the covenant personal name God had given to himself to show that Israel was a people who they knew God personally. God's the one who had known them and, 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 and sought them and, and, and rescued them from Egypt. The one who had numbered the hairs on their head. 
who had made them his own people, who had promised to love them and never forsake them and be faithful to the bitter end. That's who Samson has come to know God as. And this, I believe, is why Samson is in the hall of faith. Because at the end of his life, don't miss the irony here, he's blind, but he finally sees Lord God, Lord of all, Yahweh, covenant Lord. How do you sum up Samson? Uh, There's so much to his life. There's so much potential, so much wasted, so much to lament. And yet at the end he sees. He's still worried about vengeance, right? That's why it's just confusing. And he's not a saint sanctified. But he sees something true about God. But at the end of the day, you know, Samson's life is not about Samson, and your life is not about you, and my life's not about me, but it's about what God is doing. And the story of Samson is not primarily about Samson, although there's much we can learn from Samson, but it's about the God who could do so much through such a vehicle as Samson. It's about the God who gives graciously over and over and far abounding. I mean, Samson spent 20 years taking his gift for granted, and God did not withdraw it. Think about that. You know, my kids aren't sufficiently thankful for the gifts I give them. I'm, I'm like, okay, take it away now. 20 years. God is so gracious. He's the God who pursues Israel over and over again. The judges cycle so repetitive, but it's just a sign of the God who will not stop coming after us, no matter our folly and our foolishness. He's the God who pursued even Samson. Think about that. You know, if Samson were alive today, there'd be a podcast about him about how terrible and abusive and narcissistic of a leader he is. And yet God goes after Samson. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. It's the character of God. It's who he was, it's who he is, it's who he always will be. He has not changed. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, left his throne to come after us, to dwell physically among us. And unlike Samson, he never disobeyed. He never broke a vow. Uh, It says that he lived in perfect submission to his father. Everything his father said, Jesus did. Jesus only did what his father wanted. He was not a man of war like Samson, given to vengeance, but he was a prince of peace. One who was gentle and lowly, such that he wouldn't break a bruised reed. But like Samson, Jesus' greatest work would be accomplished at his death. Not to bring death to the living, like Samson did, but to bring life to those who are dead. When he came into our world, and he took the, the guilt and the shame and the punishment that we deserve for all of our foolishness, for all of our sin, he took all of the wrath of God that is deserved on sin, and he took it on himself. So that when he died... It was atoned for. It was covered. It was paid for. And here's the beautiful thing. It's without remainder. It was not starting the process, and now you got to finish it yourself. It was once and forever. Nothing is left. There's no condemnation. Now, here's the thing. It's, It's not applied automatically. We don't receive that because we were born in a church. We don't receive that because our spouse is a Christian or our parents were Christians All of us, we have to cry out ourselves in brokenness and in poverty of spirit. Christ, you are are my only hope. 
Jesus' blood covers everything. Brothers and sisters, whatever this week may bring, whatever may come down the quarter of your life, this is the God we serve. And know that he's coming after you in the best possible way. He will do what he has to to make you his own, to lead you to joy, to fullness of life. That's where our hope is. He will complete what he began. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you that you came into our lives and that by your death you gave life to many and at your death you conquered the forces of darkness and sin. You broke our bonds and made us free. Help us to walk in that freedom, to live in that freedom. May our confidence be only in what Christ has done for us to know that we have nothing left to prove. All we have left is to give our lives back as offerings of praise because there's nothing else we can do that makes any sense at this point. Thank you for your word. May it continue to resonate in our hearts throughout this week. Remind us of the example of Samson that you are God who will humble us, but oh, it is always for our redemption. For that is who you are. We praise your holy name. Amen.